Well, this morning we're back in the Gospel of John and we're just a few messages away from finishing this Gospel. So turn with your Bibles to John chapter 19. This morning is a familiar passage for us as Christians. And because of its familiarity, we can easily miss some important aspects of what's happening when Jesus is being crucified. And I wanna center our time this morning around three statements that Jesus makes in our passage this morning. We're gonna look at John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. And there's three statements by Jesus in these verses that I wanna center the majority of our time on. First is in verses 26 and 27, where Jesus is communicating to his mother and also to John, the writer of this gospel. Second is in verse 28, where Jesus says he thirsts. And the third statement is in verse 30, where Jesus says it is finished. These three statements by our Lord give us a a pretty good view of of why there is a cross. I don't know about you, if you're this way, but when I fly, and I've had plenty of opportunity, I, I like to sit at the window seat. Now, I like to sit at the window seat uh, to have a clear view, if it's possible, down on the ground. I want to see what things look like. Uh, And from the height of the plane, usually when you're taken off or landing, you can see quite a bit. You can piece things together and see why things are laid out the way they are. I loved flying in and out of Seattle when we lived here and, and looking for my home. I wanted to see if I could somehow picture it, see it where it is, and then see the neighborhood and why things flow in that way. And seeing it from that distance, that height up there, you can, you can see things a little more clearly. Well, that's the goal for this morning. Looking at things from the top on high and seeing how it all fits together. Well, I want to read the passage here and then we'll get started. So if you haven't turned already, please do. John 19, we're going to read the last, read the last phrase in, in the verse 16 and then through verse 30. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and from my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine in a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? God, we ask that you would give us understanding this morning as we look at your word. As we see the impact of the events here of the cross, of all that transpires on Calvary, may we be teachable this morning. Lead us and convict us and change us. That we would allow your word to affect us in our relationships and you would understand the, the phrases by Jesus here as he's hanging on the cross. God, most of all, may you be glorified in this time. May you be glorified in, in your word being preached. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Before we launch into the statements that Jesus makes, I want to see how we got to this point. We ended last week with the final judgment by Pilate, handing Jesus over to be crucified and washing his hands of the situation. And our passage picks right up there in verse 16, and they says they took Jesus. And that phrase, they, they took Jesus, is the clue that the second more brutal flogging happened to Jesus. And now more severely beaten and bruised, Jesus carries his own cross, which was the Roman custom. He walks to Golgotha, the Latin equivalent of Calvaria, where we get the name Calvary. John, in his writing, limits his words in describing the crucifixion of Jesus. You remember, his gospel comes much later than the other gospel writers, so he's not retelling the story. They've already done that. He's, he's moving at a steady pace, not because it's insignificant, but he wants to keep the reader focused on the main point. And in verse 18, they were uh, crucified with him, two others, one on each side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The Jews were, were quite upset over this inscription, the leaders. They, they didn't like what Pilate wrote and put above Jesus' head on the cross. Most of the in fact, most, if not all, Roman executions were done in a public place, in a, in a thoroughfare, so to show others what, what happens when you cross Rome. They, they want you to see this and be impacted. And so the, the sign is there to show the crime that he committed. John informs us that the sign is written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. It was written in Aramaic because it was the most widely understood language at the time, it was also written in Latin because it's the official language of Rome, and it's also written in Greek for many of the Gentiles who would be walking into the city. And I believe, though, that there's even more significance why John is the only gospel writer that informs us that this was written in three languages. I believe by noting the three languages, John is declaring that Jesus is the king for everyone. He's not merely a Jewish savior, but he is the savior for Greeks and Romans too. He's the savior of the world. And Pilate's wording was a way to bring revenge on the leaders for their trapping of him. And the leader's anger is there because they would rather place the blame at Jesus' feet than, in, than take the blame themselves. And so they make that suggestion to Pilate, but he won't be moved. His response in verse 22, what I have written, I have written. And in this, you can see the sovereignty of God, even in the sign being written. Then in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. 
one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another in verse 24, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. The dividing of Jesus' clothing and casting of lots is the fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18, which reads, they divided my garments among them and my clothing, they cast lots. It was a standard Roman practice for the soldiers performed uh, when they were performing an execution to take the victim's clothing. And scholars say that the average Jew of Jesus' time wore five articles of clothing. He wore a, a loincloth, a tunic, shoes, a turban or scarf, and, a, and an outer robe. So there were four soldiers. This allowed one article of clothing for each of them, leaving the outer robe. And normally they would tear apart this outer robe in four seams and divide it among themselves, but Jesus' robe was seamless. It was one piece. So for them, there was no reason to tear it. The soldiers decided to cast lots to see who would take the robe. Seems like a, a reasonable thing to do, right? It makes sense. And this teaches us this morning that even these men have no idea that they're fulfilling yet the word of God. The prophecies given hundreds of years earlier. God is showcasing for us in the casting of lots that he has complete control over the situation. He's had it all planned out. Just as Pilate was under the control of God with his sign, so these men are also under his control. So John moves very swiftly through this passage into the statements of Jesus where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And the first statement I want you to notice is, is Jesus is to his mother. Behold, your mother, he says. It's verses 26 and 27. It says, when Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved and the disciple who He's talking about is John himself, who's writing the gospel. Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. What's going on in these verses? Well, I believe it's, it's significant for us. First, remember, this is set in a time when there is no nursing homes. There's no social security. There's no pensions. There's no way for widows to be taken care of. So when you have a woman that has no means of taking care of herself, she would go to live with family. There was no Medicaid, there was no 401k, there's no Florida or Arizona to move towards. They, they lived in with their, their, their family. She was living with Jesus. And he's gonna die in a few moments. So what does he do? He makes plans for her care. He's looking down from the cross on his earthly mother and sets plans out for her provision. Now, we remember in, in John 7 that Jesus had brothers, but from that chapter, it's clear they, they reject him. They do not believe the gospel. And so what Jesus is, is saying here, what Jesus is instructing us here, is that at the foot of the cross, all other relationships change. Because of salvation, relationships with other people on this planet who don't share the same blood as you change. If you're a Christian here this morning, you can look around at other Christians in this room and realize that you relate to them differently now because you're a Christian. Others in this room are now your brothers and sisters. And I'm being serious here. This is not a Christian cliche. And when I go up to a, a brother and Lord, I, I usually say brother because I mean it. It's significant. I view them as my brother. 
And Jesus is saying here that the cross completely changes the relationships that you have with others. It brings people into your life who also believe and trust in Christ. And it forms an unbreakable bond, a forever bond. You're, you have a family now, a much larger family than the blood relatives that you care very deeply for. But the bonds we have in Christ with other believers are stronger and longer than that of blood relatives. You should love your family and you should care for them, but unless they come to Christ, the people you will spend eternity with are seated right here this morning. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. And through the cross, it brings us into a new community. The second thing I notice in this, this point of Jesus talking to his mother is that we tend to read the Bible with a cultural grid. We come with certain assumptions as we approach scripture. And, and living in America, we, we filter a lot of the scriptures to the point of we're individuals. We're, we're singular. We, we think about us. And we come to the cross and, and we see it how it only impacts ourselves. And, and sometimes we don't ever see past ourselves. We don't realize the magnitude of what transpires beyond ourselves. We, we, we see the impact of the cross and we say, look at the infinite love that he has for me. Look how it changes me. Look at my relationship with God. I feel forgiven. I'm complete. All of which are correct. But that's not all that happens. It changes our relationships to other people too. You no longer belong just to yourself. When we come to the foot of the cross and we realize our sin in light of Christ's sacrifice, we're made new. No, no longer does my social status matter. No longer does my family name matter. No longer does my degrees and employment matter. No longer does my race or culture matter. Your relationships with other Christians become the strongest relationships in your life. And if this, is, this haven't happened to you, then you haven't fully understood the gospel. You were, you were thinking of the gospel only under general terms, that he loves me, that he forgives me. But that's not all. It affects how you relate to others. You now have a family that you didn't have before. You now belong to something that you never belonged before. You're accepted, not because you earned it, but because of adoption. You are part of a forever family. And you relate to this family much differently than their the blood relatives that you were born into. And you might be thinking of the cross in a very general term, you know, that he loves me, he forgives me. And what you haven't seen is how it completely changes your attitudes to not only Christians, but to non-Christians. The cross has changed how you view everyone else, at least it should. We see them as brothers or sisters, as believers, or we see the non-Christians as people who desperately need to be part of the family. In the cross, we see the great lengths Christ went into order in order so that we could be saved and that we could be brought into the family of God. And if he does this and makes us righteous, we can walk across the street to our neighbors and apologize for never talking to them for the last 20 years that we lived on the same street and invite them to church. We can do that. And when we do this, we act much different with a much different attitude than the world in which we live. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
What does that mean? It means my relationship to the world is completely changed. Nothing bugs me like the way it used to. Nothing controls me like it used to. Nothing even looks like it used to. And that's how absolutely per- pervasive and sweeping the effect of the cross is on human life. That's Jesus' first statement. The second statement is, I thirst. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Have you ever stopped and, and, and pondered that phrase, I thirst? I believe there's something significant in those two words. The word thirst is, is littered throughout the scriptures. It's used for those that are in terminal or spiritual or agonizing and emptiness and death. If you were to journey back to the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah or even go through the Psalms, you would read about people who are away from God, who want God, and they use the descriptive word of thirst. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. You should know this verse or you've heard it before. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And in Jeremiah 2, 13, God says, you have turned away from me. I am the fountain of living water, and you've chosen something else. You've, you've found broken cisterns. You've dug wells. He says, but you will die of thirst because none of those things can hold water. And you have these metaphors throughout the, the Old Testament. Why? why? Why does God choose to use thirst as a descriptive term for us not having God? I believe what the Bible is teaching us is that there is something your soul needs every bit as your body needs water. There's something that if you don't have, your soul will will wither and you'll eventually burn up and die. The same as if you didn't have water for your body. We've talked about this already. John has in his gospel. And, And John 4, the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. She had been married and divorced five times and now she's living with a man that she's not married to and she's an outcast among her own people. She knows it and so this is why she goes to the well in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day to get water from the well. She's she's ashamed. She's continued to look for, for satisfaction in a well that won't satisfy and so Jesus knows that she'll be there and he meets her there and he approaches her and asks her for water but she's She's baffled by the question, and then he responds to her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he had given you living water. And everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And Jesus shows her that her thirst is, is more than ordinary water. And then again later in John chapter 7, he says to the multitudes, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The thing about thirst to the physical body is that there is a, it's a terrible way to die. There's something that the writers during the time of the Bible knew very well. They knew about living in in a hot and arid climate with, with no technology, no air conditioning, no refrigeration, no running water. They knew thirst. We don't know thirst. You know what happens in my house when I'm thirsty? I go to the faucet. 
and magically water comes out. I don't know thirst. They knew thirst. Well, the scary thing about death by dehydration is that it usually happens when it's hot. The sun is out and beating down on people. And the experts say that at first the thirst comes when there's an emptiness and maybe a sense of being shriveled up. But in the last stages, you, you feel like your insides are burning. It's the burning on the inside that it's about to kill you. It's not the sun on the outside. It's the impact on the inside. You're dying of dehydration and dying a, a terrible death of thirst. Every part of your body, every molecule needs water and you're drying up, you're, you're parched and the end is coming. And the Bible screams at us that if we don't get God at the center of our soul, if you don't have the living God at the very center of your soul, you will die of thirst and it's an eternal thirst. It'll be a forever parchment that burns and is tormenting for the rest of time. Friends, this is hell. Now I know that some of you here this morning maybe struggle with the idea of hell. You might even struggle with the imagery of hell. So maybe this discussion will bring a new light to the idea. Many people think that God takes people at the end of their life and throws them down and, and they're crying out, no, 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 God, please forgive me, please, God. And God says, no, it's too late. And he throws them into hell and he turns the heat up. I don't believe that's what happens. Jesus has taught us throughout this gospel the idea of thirst and how people try and try to quench that thirst with anything but God. They go to the world, they go to people, they go to stuff and money and earthly happiness to quench their thirst. And Jesus comes to show them the way of eternal satisfaction for their soul, a way to quench their thirst, and they reject it. In hell, the main burning is not on the outside. It's on the inside. When you reach out for anything other than God to satisfy your thirst, you're going to burn. You will die of thirst because every molecule of your body is screaming out for eternal water. And if you don't get that eternal water, you will continue to die. But here's the scary thing. In hell, you don't want God. You never wanted God. You continue to reject him. And you try to drink deep of everything else that is killing you. You know that you've heard this before. If you're stuck on a raft out in the middle of the ocean and you're thirsty, what is the last thing you're supposed to do when you're thirsty? It's to reach in for that salt water. Why? Because it just speeds up the issue. The more you drink, the faster you die of thirst. It will not quench your thirst. It only intensifies your thirst. When Jesus says for us in verse 28, I thirst, what is he saying? 
lot of commentaries that I read this week simply say that Jesus was thirsty. It was hot out. It was a long day for Jesus, and he was being crucified, so he, he wanted a drink. And I say, no. That's not what he meant at all. I don't believe that for a second is why Jesus says he thirsts. I mean, think about the fact that of all that he's endured up to this point, and he hasn't shared a word yet of the pain and the torment. He's been beaten and whipped and punched and crowned, jammed into his head and spit at and struck in his face and mocked and nailed to a tree. And he never complains. You know, Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Another prophecy fulfilled. Like a lamb that's led to a slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened out his mouth. There's another scripture that Jesus fulfills in Psalm 22, 14 and 15. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a, a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of earth. So why is Jesus crying out for thirst now? And why is he doing it in a language of the Bible? You need to know that the beating, the scourging, the punching, the mocking, the blood are just minor slaps to what Jesus is truly experiencing right now. Jesus is going to hell for us. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Is that just an exaggerated statement? When he cries out and thirsts, is he just thirsty? You know, as Jesus is led up to Calvary, his cross is on his back. The soldiers are there to perform the task. And they throw him onto his back to, to nail him onto the, the post, and they scream. And, and one soldier raises the mallet to sink a spike into his arm. Know that the soldier's heart must continue to pump as he readies Jesus' wrist. The scriptures say that someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute. For no man has power on his own to do this. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives this man energy? Who holds his molecules together? In Colossians 1, it says, only by the Son do all these things hold together? Think about that. Jesus is laying there. He wills that the soldier live on so that he can drive the spike into his arms. And as the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the, the nerves in his arm. The sensations that they would be capable of and the design proves flawless. The, the nerves perform exactly as they should. And they lift the cross. God now on display, naked, can scarcely breathe for himself. But these pains that he's experiencing are just a mere warm-up to the other and growing dread. He, he began to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during the day, an earth, unearthly 
foul odor began to, to waft, not under his nose, but in his heart. He, he feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the, the living filth from our souls. The apple of his father's eye now turns brown because of rotting. And he realizes that his father, his father will see him like this. And from heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion, disturbed, shaking his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man now hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him this way. Never has the son even felt his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the sky. It's pitch black. The son doesn't recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated and lusted and stolen and gossiped and murdered and envied and hated and lied. You have cursed and robbed and overspent and overeaten and fornicated and disobeyed and embezzled and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever ignored the poor, played the coward, belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk, you who molest children and sell killer drugs. You travel in cliques and you mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections and format revolutions and torture animals and worship demons? Does this list ever end? Splitting families and raping virgins and acting smugly and playing the pimp. You buy politicians and you practice pornography. You accept bribes. You have burned buildings and perfected terrorist tactics and founded false religions, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? And the father watches as his heart's treasure, the, the mirrored image of himself, sinks, drowning in liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes on one singular direction. And Jesus cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus go to the cross? We know in those two words, I thirst. He didn't just get beaten for us. He, he didn't just get pierced for us. He didn't just get stabbed for you. You know, a lot of people could have done that for you. Many have. 
In fact, last week we celebrated Memorial Day for those that have sacrificed, given their lives for the freedom of our country. Jesus wasn't just beaten for you or stabbed for you or nailed to the cross for you. You you could be beaten for three hours. You could be stabbed for three hours. You could could have that type of pain inflicted on your body for three hours. So Jesus didn't just go through physical pain for us. No, on the cross, Jesus Christ experienced spiritual death for us. He experienced what you and I would experience if we were sent to hell forever. We would feel an an eternal explosion with no end in sight. And Jesus had the sin of others heaped on himself, and he died a death of thirst. He thirsted. He went to hell for us. He did it for us. Jesus says, I I marched into hell so you could have the heavenlies. I, I took the desert so you could have the garden. I took the eternal thirst so you could have the fountain of life. And unless you understand why he went, why he experienced hell for us, you won't understand the third statement of Jesus. You need to understand the magnitude of Jesus' statement of thirst to understand the last section this morning. It's in verse 30 where Jesus says that it's finished. Another phrase to ponder. It's the English translation, it is finished from one word in Greek that Jesus speaks from the cross. That one word is tetelestai. Tetelestai. And it's translated, it is finished in English, and I don't believe it is a full enough understanding. It sounds passive to me. It is finished means it's over. It could, it could mean that the event that's happening is now completed or done, it's over with. But when he says to die," he's communicating much more. Telos is the Greek word for design or plan. He's not talking about what has happened to him, but what he has accomplished. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've done it. I have accomplished it. The work that God gave me to do, I have finished it. It is utterly finished. It is completed. I've done it, and I've done it completely. And what has he done? What has he accomplished? 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He, He died to bring us to God. He has journeyed the infinite distance between you and God And there there isn't an inch left, friends. He has done everything needed to bring you right into the arms of God. There is nothing left for you to do. He has done it. He did it completely, and it's completely finished. I had one amen. Amen. There is nothing you can do. You know, if you've been around church at all in your life... You've intended services here at Easter or Good Friday. You've heard these words, it is finished. And you realize that Jesus didn't just die on the cross to suffer to satisfy the anger of men. He didn't bring some general pardon for people, but rather to accomplish the plan of God. 
He accomplished everything necessary for you and to me to be brought before God. Holy and perfect in his sight. And we have the gospel in those three words. It is finished. You know, when Buddha died, you know what his last words were? Strive without ceasing. What a horrible way to leave for your people. Strive without ceasing. The last words of Jesus are, don't you dare strive. I've done it all. Two drastically different endings by two drastically different men. And, and I realize as we're, we're sitting here in the heaviness and the weightiness of this, there's different reactions to this phrase, it is finished. Reactions that I've observed in myself and other believers. There are three types of people actually. You have those that have the, the worker complex, those that have an inferiority complex, and those that have a superiority complex. First, the worker complex. Religion in this world says, finish the work. But the gospel says, receive the finished work. Religion says, if you finish the work, someday God might clear you to come into heaven. The gospel says, receive the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive all that he does in heaven. Do we believe that? I mean, do we seriously believe that? You know what I mean, right? There are two ways to believe something. Sometimes we know something. We've heard the stats. We've heard the information. But it really never changes our behavior. We believe, but not really. We believe, but we're really not affected by it. It's one thing to say, I believe Jesus Christ completed the work on the cross. And it's another thing to know it and to live in light of it. And I've heard from people who say, I'm going to ask Jesus into my life. I'm really going to live for Christ now. I'm going to show him. And what they're really saying is that even though they have a general idea of what Christ is on the cross, they don't believe that it's complete. And they believe now they have another chance to prove that they're worthy. That's what they're doing. God, now I'm worthy. And Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could have one more chance to prove your worthiness to him. Jesus Christ died on the cross to be your worthiness. Jesus isn't there just to put you on the track and now you're off again. He was punched for you. He's beaten for you. He was destroyed for you. He paid it all. He has done it all. It is finished. If you believe that Christ is just there to point you in the right direction and that you can go now on your own and, and show your worthiness, you have not understood that phrase, it is finished. You are striving and striving, hoping that Christ can see your worthiness and, and you come to the end of yourself and you realize, is this even possible? And what you need to understand is it's finished. It's finished. He, he's done it all and he's accepted you based upon Christ's finished work on the cross. So you have this worker complex. The second one is an inferiority complex. There are those of you who feel inadequate. You constantly feel like you can't live up to the standard and you call yourself names. You beat yourself up mentally and physically. You, you also beat yourself up spiritually. You, you are a Christian, but you say, I'm so sinful and I feel so low at times. 
Now, one test of this is whether you are able to take criticism at all. Instead, you're unbelievably defensive when any accusations lobbed at you. And what's the issue? The issue is you don't, you don't believe that it's finished. You can repeat the gospel. You, you know that you're a sinner. You know that you're only saved by the grace of God. And you know that you're not good enough. But you know what? You're, you're still trying to finish Christ's work. You're coming along afterwards to add more because you feel that you're worse. Listen, friends, in Christ, you were already beaten up. In Christ, you were crowned with thorns. In Christ, you were already scourged. You were trying to complete the work, but it's already been done. Christ already went through that for you. And unfortunately, many are trying to still perform that work. If I hate myself enough, if I, if I knock myself around, then maybe God will have pity on me. And you walk around with an inferiority complex, not trusting the finished work of Christ. Don't continue to walk away that way. Remember, remind yourself, preach to yourself that Christ finished that work on the cross. And God sees you as beautiful and radiant in his son. The third is the superiority complex. This, is, this one is the hardest one to recognize in ourselves. And, and when I start, maybe some of you are going to start thinking of someone else. You ever do that in a sermon? Where you sit and listen and think, this person needs to hear this sermon. And, and I'll go through it and you might think, oh, I know that person. Don't do that. Don't listen for someone else. Listen for yourself. Are you the person who cannot stand to be around people who don't have their act together? They don't believe the right things. They're not living a moral way. And they may be outright unbelievers, but maybe, they, maybe they're just from another church. You look at them and they think they're Pentecostal. They're a Democrat. And you're not going to talk with them. They are whatever it is, fill in the blank. Do you have trouble being warm to these people? Do you have trouble being friendly to them? And you can't just stand the way that people live, that people live that way, that people continue to live in immoral ways, and it just drives you nuts. Friends, the problem is, is that you feel morally superior to them. Here's another test, grudges. You can stay angry at people for a very long time. And you're only angry at them when you say to yourself, I would never do what they did. Maybe someone has wronged you and you're angry and your heart says, Jeff, you would never do anything like that. You know better than to act that way, and so you're angry at them. But here's the rub. If you understand in light of the gospel that you are absolutely capable of doing the same thing, that they are really no better than you, then you wouldn't have a problem forgiving them. And if you refuse to forgive them, it's a moral superiority. 
you have looked right past the cross and you've chosen not to believe that Christ paid for your wicked sins also on the cross. You have forgotten that Christ forgave you when you were unforgivable. That he embraced you when you were filthy. That he loved you when you were unlovable. And so as Christians, we should be the most forgiving people on planet Earth. And our hope is not in the behavior of others. But it's in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now listen, friends, all these issues go to the fact that we may believe the answers to the questions. We know that Jesus died for us. But when, when life happens, we forget the answers. And we fall back on self. What if I say, how, how much did Jesus do on the cross? A, half of what you need to get to God. B, three quarters of what you need to get to God. C, one quarter. Or D, everything you need to get to God. How many people, though, would get that question wrong? They need to see and understand that it's finished. Christ accomplished. And the scary thing is, we all get that wrong. Right? If you're sitting here and you're honest with yourself this morning, you've gotten that question wrong this week. You've believed at some point that you needed to do something to earn that when Christ did it all. He completed it. We forget. This is why we celebrate communion. I'm going to ask the men if they would come forward this morning. We celebrate communion on a regular basis here to remember what Christ did for us on the cross. It's to remember what he did. We remember that Christ took our sins upon himself. We remember that Christ cried out and said he's thirsty because he was experiencing hell for us. He experienced hell so that we wouldn't have to. And on that cross, Jesus finished the work. He finished the work. And he cried out to show us all it is finished. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you again for the reminder from your word, the desperate reminder that we need of all that you've done for us on the cross. God, looking back again, seeing your complete control of the situation. And as humans looking on from the outside, if we're sitting there, God, we would think, we would want to race to the fact that things are running out of control now. That it's just craziness and madness and, and what's going to happen and how is this happening and what's going to happen next and yet you sit calmly rest assured knowing what's going to happen that this was the plan and this was the way. And so this morning God we, we praise you for your sovereignty that we can read and, and, and know and understand at the cross. 
And we praise you that, that through the cross, we can experience forgiveness for our sins. And God, I pray for those that are in our midst this morning, whether they're new here this week or have been for many weeks, and they've never, never placed their faith in you. They've never experienced salvation. Father, I pray that today is the day to reading and hearing your words on the cross that they would believe it and that they would trust in you. And now, Father, as we partake of this communion table, may you be honored and glorified through it. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.